In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about a career interrupted by the arrival of cancer. But before we get into today's episode, I want to plant a little idea in your heart. Have you begun writing your breast cancer stories yet? My hope is this podcast inspires you to put pen to paper, to use writing to make sense of your experiences. But maybe that isn't quite enough. Maybe you need an assignment. I know all too well the motivation of a deadline, so I've got one for you. Wildfire Magazine's Identity and Aftermath issue is coming up this winter. This is an issue in which we explore the mental health side of a breast cancer diagnosis. I want you to think about how you've changed since your diagnosis. Has the way in which you think of yourself in the world changed? What does the breast cancer aftermath look like for you? Pick a moment that illustrates this transformation and write about it. Send in your submission in consideration for the Identity and Aftermath issue by October 25th. Find out more about our submission guidelines or join a writing workshop to get inspired prompts that lead you to writing your stories. Visit wildfirecommunity.org. All right, on with the episode. The very first writing I did about breast cancer was in the middle of a coffee shop where I was trying to get a deadline done for my job. At the time, I was an event producer. My employer was 3,000 miles away, and I had a relaxed work-from-home schedule that worked really well with having a little one. My daughter, however, didn't love that work took me from her to a place that was behind a door in a spare bedroom turned office. So as often as I could, I'd slip away to the nearby coffee shop. The goal was to get as much done as quickly as possible and get back to her. But on this particular day in March of 2012, I was distracted. I had found a lump in my breast while breastfeeding, and my OBGYN had referred me for a mammogram. The mammogram turned into an ultrasound, which turned into a biopsy. That had been the day before. I sat in the coffee shop surrounded by students, tourists, families, and others trying to work, and my mind could not stop thinking about what might be coming next. I had a huge deadline to complete, but my mind refused to set down its worries. So I opened up a blank word doc and told the story of finding the lump and the subsequent appointments. It felt really good to turn to my life and report the facts as I knew them. I didn't know the lingo yet or the names of the characters or even how I felt about it all, but I wrote down what I remembered. I got it out of my head by being an observer. I was inspired to share this with you in preparation for my guest today, who is a journalist. Before I was an event producer for 15 years, I was a budding journalist myself. All my life I've been writing, but it wasn't until cancer that I found a career in personal memoir. 
It can often be easier to report on other people's lives or to report on our own using only the facts, leaving out the emotion. Finding a balance in there requires a lot of vulnerability, as my guest today knows. My guest is Aisha Chowdhury. Aisha is a freelance journalist based in Southern Africa. Previously, she covered Congress in Washington, D.C., conflicts in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And in recent years, she co-launched a podcast called The Tenderness Revolution. And in the midst of it all, she was diagnosed with stage two triple negative breast cancer at the age of 29. Welcome to The Burn, Aisha. Thank you, April. Thanks for being here. Thanks. So today you're here to read a piece you wrote for our community issue. This was an issue in which we covered a side of breast cancer that we learn sometimes the hard ways when we head into something feeling as though we have to be fiercely independent only to discover that the only way through the fire is with the strength of community. Your piece is called A Journalist Embedded in Cancer Land. After you read, we will talk about your writing and your experience. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the end for a writing prompt inspired by our chat. All right. I'll let you take it away. Awesome. Thank you, April. All right. You've already mentioned the title, A Journalist Embedded in Cancer Land. And here's my story. When you work in Washington, time runs on steroids and dare you miss a dose. So between the inconvenient lime-sized lump I felt in my breast to the biopsy I drove myself to, I had no time to waste in wondering if it was really cancer. I did, however, think about it on a Friday in mid-July of 2016. After wrapping up a productive conversation on the ABC show Government Matters, I nervously rambled to a former colleague on the panel with me about the strange lump thing I had discovered and how everything was fine. It's just going to be a nuisance when I have to get the cyst removed, is what I conveniently said to my editor that day, but that I needed to take the afternoon to get my pathology report. He sounded worried and concerned. I pretended it was all going to be okay. With no family history of breast cancer and late 20s youth on my side, I would just have to take a few days off to get this annoying thing removed and life goes on. That Friday afternoon hit me like a lightning bolt. Poorly differentiated ductal carcinoma with medullary features, multiple fragments. What on God's earth does that even mean? I kept repeating it out loud as if somehow reciting the words would stir an aha moment in my now stunned brain. Instead, there were no moments. I was utterly, entirely, desperately lost. My life came to a standing halt. Nothing this random doctor I had never met, who unceremoniously delivered me that you have cancer news, made sense. All I could get out of him was that it was an aggressive type of cancer and that I needed to see an oncologist as soon as possible. I'd been working in Washington, D.C., covering Congress from Capitol Hill. I had to hustle every single day, but I always gazed into the historic, beautifully painted ceilings of the United States Senate and thought, How lucky am I to cover news from here? I was 29 years old, had covered the conflict in Pakistan, embedded with the U.S. military, and traveled all over eastern Afghanistan, worked in local news in Washington. You'd be surprised how nerve-wracking covering the birth of a baby panda is. And covered politics from the nation's capital. Yet nothing had prepared me for cancer. What did finally prepare me for acceptance of this cancer was when I looked at myself one day in the bathroom mirror after spending almost six hours vomiting following awful 
chemotherapy treatment, I saw a steroid-induced, swollen face, hardly any eyebrows left, a bald-headed woman I did not recognize. I felt hideous, more disgusted with myself than the toxic red drug flowing through my veins. A moment of tears was followed by a flashback to when I interviewed a woman in Lahore, Pakistan, a victim of an acid attack. She was working at a salon at that time, making other women look and feel beautiful. Her face was badly damaged from the violent incident. But when I wanted to take a photo of her, she posed gracefully next to the salon sign and asked me to make sure I got a pretty picture of her on her good side. I was absolutely in awe of her. Even after encountering such unfair brutality, she saw herself as the most beautiful woman in the room. I felt selfish when I thought of her that day. Cancer was unjust, taking away so much of me bit by bit, even almost five years later, constantly reminding me of the remnants it has left behind. My body will never be the same, but my hair grew back, my eyelashes, though severely less dramatic, did grow back, my eyebrows came back, and my face shaped back into what it was used to be. I still feel selfish for feeling pity for myself when there was this woman I had met years ago who was a symbol of survival, courage, and pride. So many women go through so much worse every day, yet come out on the other side with tremendous amounts of courage and strength. I suppose I held on to that inspiration throughout the rest of my treatment and did come out on the other side of cancer, luckily, with more courage and strength than I initially ever thought I had. An integral part of uncovering my own resilience was recognizing the cast of characters, family, friends, and coworkers who rallied to get me through diagnosis and treatment. There were people who I expected, like my family, my friends, who were incredibly busy but took days off work to help me left young kids with grandparents just to take me to chemo, called me from thousands of miles away checking in on me, friends who prayed for me for months on end and the ones who had known me for decades, making me laugh throughout the painful journey. Then there were the unexpected friends I made. A woman sitting across from me alongside her daughter in the oncology waiting area showed off her new t-shirt her police department got her. I'm pretty sure there was profanity on that shirt, and I thought, gosh, that is such a relief because really, can I say it? Um, fuck, you, you can. Fuck yeah. cancer. <laughs> it sucks. We started a chat. She had already lost her best friend to cancer, and now she was fighting the same disease she saw wreak havoc in her loved one's life. Yet she never let the illness destroy her spirit, and what a fighting spirit it was. I can't imagine going long without speaking to her now. My job was another place I never expected such compassion from. I thought I was just another easily replaceable journalist in Washington. Instead, people I did not even know at my former publication reached out to me. My editor worked tirelessly on fine-tuning my stories until I could barely make sense of my own words because he knew how much my finished work meant to me. This cast of characters strengthened me daily and created a safe space for me to grow into this new person because nothing changes you like cancer. Still, there were those tiny moments I hold on to like the innocence of my little nephew who was too young to understand what my rapid physical transformation meant. All he knew was that I was the same person. And sometimes when you're going through so much physical pain and emotion at the same time, you need assurances. Someone not entirely defined by the illness is not forgotten. Hmm. Thank you so much for that. That was gorgeous, Aisha. I really appreciate you reading it. Thank you. Absolutely. So we'll take a quick break here, let you get a drink of water if you like. And when we come back, we will chat about your story and your experience. Awesome. 
My name is Angela Furman. I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer when I was 33. And during my treatment, I had started writing a lot to try to heal and find meaning in my experience. And when I found wildfire, I just felt seen. And the beautiful and personal stories made me feel safe and emboldened to share my own story. And through being published and writing alongside other women, I've gained so much confidence in my writing and in sharing my story. And probably most importantly, Wildfire has allowed me to connect with other women who have inspired me and encouraged me, and I know they will be lifelong friends. During the height of the global pandemic, Rory Zura not only had been let go of her job, but became diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer as well. With a long line of people in her family with various cancers, especially breast, Rory knew this day would inevitably come. Years prior, Rory pleaded with her doctor for a preventative mastectomy, only to be denied for not meeting the criteria set forth by her insurance company. Channeling her lifelong athleticism, Rory knew she'd have to be at her strongest to take on this fight for her life. Utilizing fitness over the course of her treatment and beyond, Rory founded Foobs and Fitness, bridging the gap between the medical world and the fitness world. Learn more about the community for those who are fake, fit, and fabulous at foobsandfitness.com. All right. Thank you so much for the love, Angela, and thank you for the support of this podcast, Rory. Really appreciate you and the work you're doing for the breast cancer community. Welcome back, Aisha. Thank you again for your powerful writing and for joining us all the way from Africa late at night <laughs> to record this episode. No problem. Thank you. Absolutely. So my first question for you is just for an update. It's been a little while since our community issue came out and since you wrote this story. I want to ask you how you are health-wise and also how the story is sitting with you these days. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Health-wise, I think I'm doing all right. I had a little bit of a scare recently, and um, I can tell you that being away from home, going through, you know, medical stuff far away from your cancer team is can be quite frightening um, and and a little little nerve-wracking. So that wasn't fun, but it you know it was fine. It turned out to be just a weird thing. Um, so health-wise, otherwise, I'm good. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's it's funny. Um, the further we, I just had my August 1st actually was my sixth year. So um, August 1st, 2016 is when I was on that chemo chair starting my treatment. And, you know, I'll go through older photos and just how I felt then is so strong. Um, it's 2022 now. You would think you'd kind of, you know, move on from that or, um, but I just, I feel cancer and treatment for cancer is something that just sits with you so strongly that it's really hard to phase out, you know. Um, I think it's what I constantly hear. Either you kind of stay in the cancer land world where, 
You, you want to know how other people are doing. You want to read the stories on the updates of cancer treatment. Like any update I see about a study or, you know, this kind of therapy is really working, especially for triple negative, I quickly click on it because I want to know, even though I'm not in it now, I know someone else is. And there's just this connection that I can't lose and I can't forget. So I guess mentally, that's where I am with the story and, you know, sort of the whole journey. (laughs) I appreciate that and uh, appreciate knowing that you're six years out too, and that you are still here in the community because I think that there are, like you said, there's some people who drift away from it and some people who stay and we need people at all different stages to to provide an example, you know, for mm-hmm. others and and what they're facing and so they don't feel alone. So I appreciate you being here in the community with us and and sharing your story. And I'm curious, have you been in Cancerland continuously or do you come come and go? Did you leave for a while and decide to come back? What what's been that part so of your story? Wildfire is the first publication I actually wrote down my story. Um, It's so bizarre because I'm a writer, so it should just come easy. But for whatever reason, something that you said earlier, introducing this episode, um, it's almost sometimes easier to write other people's stories as opposed to your own. Um, And I really felt that way when I got diagnosed with cancer. Um, You know, I was scared to Um, I was scared to go to the Senate. I was scared to be around people. I was scared for anybody to see my transformation. I didn't want anybody to see me lose my hair. I was on all those steroids. Mm. I didn't want anybody to see me, you know, uh, out of my element. Um, All those things. I was sort of terrified. And frankly speaking, I don't think I ever spoke about it or I don't even think I ever acknowledged it to myself. You know, I just kind of ran with it because it all happened so fast. Um, And the treatment happened so fast and the going downhill happened so fast that I really couldn't grasp what was going on Um, until I really think until, you know, about two and a half years after um, is when I was like, huh. How on earth have I never shared my story publicly outside of my friends and close circle of, you know, family and friends? Um, And so I think that it's just it's one of those things since then. Now I'm not I'm not afraid to write about it on Twitter. I'm not afraid to answer a question. I've had people reach out to me or they'll private message me and say, you know, my friend got diagnosed. Can you talk to her? do you know what happens? Is this normal? Can I send you pictures? Does this look right to you? Um, And I realized that there really is such a big audience for the stories because Mm -hmm. they need the help. And I didn't have that when I was going through it. I didn't know a single young woman who had breast cancer. To me, I was just like, oh my God, I think I'm going to die because I don't know anybody. Everybody else is older. And um, if I got it this young, I'm this definitely has to be a death sentence, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just think that 
I've, you know, decided at that point that I want to definitely like stick around and, um, you know, stay in touch with people who are experiencing it and also just keep reading other people's stories. So all the stories that you share in Wildfire, I feel, are just, they're so moving and they kind of constantly remind you of how precious your life is, you know, and sometimes mm. some somebody says something and it triggers an emotion or a moment in your brain and you just kind of hold on to that. And um, so I think it's it's really important. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for saying all that. And yeah, a lot of what you just said really resonated with me. One of which was, you know, this idea, um, or I guess it wasn't really an idea, but you mentioned that it was kind of two and a half years later that things started really kind of sinking home maybe for you, like this realization of what you had been through and this need to, to write your story and maybe to try to find others. And I have noticed that a lot. There's, I would say in wildfire, I do have people who are earlier diagnosed, but I would say the vast majority of people who are reading wildfire stories are people who went through that whirlwind of initial diagnosis, you know, maybe even got all the way through treatment if they are early stage or at least, you know, treatment has settled into a, a pattern, mm -hmm. maybe even a few years under their belt. And then it's like, holy crap, like what, what happened? You know, that's when the things start to kind of, um, I don't know if it's a slowing down, something happens and it's a couple years in when you take stock and realize, oh, okay, I'm still feeling this or I'm still trying to make sense of this. Um, so, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Even, um, you know, medical stuff. It's so funny that, you know, I'll have a blood work report that I'm like wondering, what is this? Is this normal? And I mean, now my thing is I go through all of the Facebook pages, you know, your publication, all of the all of the resources I have where I know there's younger women like me because I'm trying mm -hmm. to now really go to the right people, <laughs> as I right. would say. Um you know, um, yes, the doctors have seen other patients who are your age, but they can't connect you to them. And I think with social media now and like all the resources we have, um, you know, like even your magazine, you can literally buy the copy online. You can just have the PDF. You can see it. It's not, you know. Um, right. So I think all of that stuff really helps because it makes it easier for someone to access it because you have questions that unfortunately in this day and age that we live in, sometimes you don't have that much time with your doctors and you just want to know from other people, is this about right? Um, and right. sometimes it is a question that comes up five years later, like it has for me, you know? Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, and some of the the stuff isn't necessarily strictly medical either. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a quality of life issue or, you know, a mental health issue. Sometimes it's, it's you're not even sure what kind of an issue it is, you know, Absolutely. it's all over the place. So it does help to, to share notes with each other. Um, yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, this is something else you just kind of mentioned too, is I got the feeling from your story and from the little bit that I know you that you are a person by the nature of your job as a journalist, but it seems like this might be your personality. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you do like to take an observation role and it sounds like you kind of 
stand back, you know, and, and see what, what is going on in front of you. And when breast cancer came along, all of a sudden you became the main character in a story. And it sounds like it took you a while to, to really honor that and experience that and give it the weight that it deserved. It maybe took five years, right, to mm -hmm. write your story for a publication. So I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that realigning yourself, recentering yourself as the main character uh, of the story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you know this, obviously, because of your journalism training, but, um, you know, they always say, don't ever become the story. You never want to be yes. the story. Um, yes. Your job is to go there, show up, get the facts, and get as close as possible to the truth. And I was, I really did. I went into like a fact-finding mode and what is this? What is happening? And you're absolutely right. I never really accepted it was happening to me and um, that, oh, God. I, it's it's me. It's my story. And that was really hard to accept for so many reasons. Um, it's not my instinct. It's not something that came naturally to me. Um, I, I really didn't know what to do or how to go about it. Um, I will say that uh, one of my mentors, um, Kim Dozier, um, at the time that this happened to her, she was a correspondent for CBS News in Iraq, and she was gravely injured. And, um, you know, she survived miraculously. She lost colleagues that day. She lost friends. Um, and she wrote a book uh, called Breathing the Fire. And I remember reading her book a long time ago, this is way before cancer, and I remember reading her book and just being completely in awe of this reporter who was able to write her story, but her story was so helpful to everybody else, like, mm -hmm. you know, in so many different situations, because she went through such, you know, there was the, the you know, mental side of losing your friends, your colleagues, um, you know, being the only one who survived that attack, it was, it was traumatic. Um, then there was the physical aspect. You had someone who's, you know, a good runner and healthy, and now she has to learn how to walk again. Um, and so she wrote, the first thing she started to do in the hospital was she started to write. Um, and, um, I guess there, there's, you know, I'm lucky to have someone like that in my life that I was able to sort of talk to and, um, who also always encouraged me to 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 also just, you know, talk out what's happening to you in your journal. It doesn't yes. have to be publicized to the world. But um, so I think that it's it, it took a while. It definitely took a while for me to grasp that it was happening to me and that what was my purpose and all of this anyway. Um, and especially when. I survived, so to speak, um, and got the, you know, no evidence of disease news. Um, I didn't really know what I'm supposed to do at that point. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing you decided to do was become visible, mm -hmm. which, you know, we are so grateful for. And it makes me think, too, about this um, shift 
you know, from, from pure journalism and more into the stories that we're talking about, the stories that are, have inspired you to write your story, as you were saying, are the ones that show us that it's not so much about what happened, but that what came next, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what did a person do with this experience or this, um, information? And so I, I feel like this maybe is a good segue. I'm hoping it's a good segue for you to talk about the tenderness revolution and this idea of, of getting into personal storytelling for the sake of building empathy and how it's a different role of journalism, but I feel like it's just, it's not, I guess what I want to say is it's not different. It's just another layer okay. that we need mm-hmm. as humans. Yeah. So I'll let you talk about it. Tell us about your podcast. Sure. Yeah. So the podcast actually came about, um, I met another journalist here um, who's based in Botswana. And uh, she mentioned this idea that she had about, she she had the name The Tenderness Revolution. And she um, had an idea of the type of stories that she felt would make for a really good podcast. And I really connected with the idea and the concept of it. Um, I have a lot of background in production and multimedia. So, um, and she has a beautiful voice. So (laughs) I think the, you know, tag team it together. And then, um, uh, you know, we've really targeted uh, a very niche audience, I would say. So a lot of the people we're interviewing um it's really it's not just to hear a feel-good story it's more about the deeper conversation and maybe sometimes very vulnerable and exposing conversations that people aren't comfortable having but that are important to understand how these emotions all work together you know empathy and kindness and and fear and love and all these things um that we experience and some people have you know the most dramatic life stories um and so it's just um it's really highlighting all of those stories and and it's uh you know it's it's great we've just had this wide range of guests um from you know runners to people who doodle and <laughs> and yourself of course um and i mean it's just it's fascinating to hear. Um, and also, it's one of those things that you realize, you know, everywhere we go, um, somebody has a story to tell. And sometimes it's it's really interesting. So I always tell mm-hmm. people to have an open mind, you know, whenever they meet people, just don't just rule somebody out because you think they're boring. You don't know. Give them some time. Get to know them. You don't know what that person's story is. It might be absolutely fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think everyone's story includes some kind of nugget that we can apply to our own experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, our conversation today, someone listening may not have had breast cancer, may not have even had cancer at all, but we've all endured hard things. And it's, it's applicable mm-hmm. to any, you know, of those hard things, the way that you and I have have traveled this path. So we need to share these stories. We need to teach each other that it's safe to be vulnerable and to um, heal through that transparency, I think. So I'm, I'm just so glad you're doing the work that you're doing both 
on both sides of this journalism spectrum. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. Um, and it's just, it's always, uh, you know, it's always interesting to me um, when there's, I guess when there's people who come out of nowhere asking you questions about cancer and you just never expect that. And to me, that just, it's, it just shows more and more that how important it is to, I, I suppose, stay in this world, you know, if you've, mm. if you've been diagnosed or if you, if you know someone who's been diagnosed, and I feel like most of us do, right? Um, yeah. Uh, especially for our age group, because the, you know, the difficulties are also unique that come with a younger age. Yes, absolutely. Well, and it really makes a difference that we um, address the age-specific needs, I think, mm -hmm. of, of breast cancer and probably other cancers too, but this is the one that I happen to have experienced. Yeah, so, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Will you tell everyone where they can find more about you online and more about the tenderness revolution as well? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have an Instagram page. It's um, Aisha C-H. So A-I-S-H-A-C-H. And then if you just uh, look up the tenderness revolution on Apple Podcasts, it's available or Spotify, whatever you choose to listen to your podcast. Um, it's yeah, it's there. And if you go to my website, AishaChowdhury.com, that's where I have most of my portfolio and, you know, all the work that I've done which is very different from, <laughs> from uh, I think, most of the stories here in Southern Africa. <laughs> I love that. And yes, as you mentioned, I had the pleasure of being a guest on The Tenderness Revolution, too. I don't think the episode is out yet, though. Not, That's not, you, I right? not okay, yet. I yeah. just finished editing it. So it's coming out very oh. soon. <laughs> love it. Yeah. Love it. Well, we'll be sure to link to... Um, I mean, not to, to my episode. That was about to sound very self-grandizing. <laughs> I was going to say, we'll definitely link to the podcast. Thank you. Well, yeah. And thank you again for being here. Thank so you. my guest today was Aisha Chowdhury. Her piece was called A Journalist Embedded in Cancerland. This came from the August-September 2021 issue of Wildfire Magazine called Community that is available in the archives. Thanks again, Aisha. Thank you, April. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 38 issues in the Wildfire Archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There's no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. Here is your writing prompt. This one is a little bit different. These are happiness touchstones. So what I want you to do is set your timer for eight minutes and make a list of all the things you love that bring you back to yourself. Mary Oliver has this wonderful line in her poem, Wild Geese. 
where she says you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So I want you to get in touch with what the soft animal of your body loves. Make a list of happiness touchstones. This is a wonderful way to trick yourself into writing, by the way. A list, when you read it at the end, can sound like poetry. So that's part one, make a list of the things that you love. Part two, gather in a box or on a shelf some little physical representations of some of these items. Maybe it's a river rock, a bit of velvet, a small vial of your favorite scent, a tube of lipstick, whatever it is for you. All right, eight minutes, write your list without stopping. See what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.